I'll be reading from the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I imagine most of you know who Johann Sebastian Bach is. Uh, he's written many familiar pieces where sheep may safely graze, or um, he has written uh, Yesu, Joy of Man's Desiring. Uh, he's written Toccata and Fugue in D minor. I don't even know what a Toccata and Fugue is. I just know that it's usually played on vampire movies and it's got a real scary beat to it. Uh, but he did something interesting. At the end of each of his manuscripts, he would initial SDG on the bottom of each manuscript. And SGD, SDG would be Sola Dea Gloria, to God be glory alone. That's what he would put on the end of his manuscripts. He even inscribed it in his organ in Leipzig. And he was trying to communicate this idea that he was living for the glory of God that the gifts that he had been given, the life that he was given, he was consecrating himself and dedicating himself to God because he alone is worthy of all this glory. Now we've been at the end of this five-week series on the solas. We've been looking at the Reformation, so the 500th anniversary uh, was on October 31. It started 1517 when Martin Luther began this really igniting a flame in Europe. Uh, and we've looked at, really, the central question to the Reformation, the reforming, the changing of the church, was how can a man or woman be made right with God? That's ultimately the question. How are we to be made right with him? And we've looked at each one of the solas because they're all giving the answer. And we learned about how salvation comes through Scripture alone. Not through the teachings and traditions of men, but through Scripture alone. And in this scripture alone, we find uh, a salvation that is by God's grace alone. That, that God gives it freely. It's not based upon the merit or the work that you've produced. And this salvation that's by grace alone is received through faith alone. That, that we're, we're receiving it in trusting him. And our faith alone is to be rooted, or I would say anchored, in Christ alone. That his life and his death and his resurrection is sufficient to reconcile us to God. So that brings us to the next question. So if we have answered the question, how can a man or woman be made right with God, then what is our response? What's the end goal of salvation? What is the purpose of salvation? And the fifth sola, sola de gloria, is to God be the glory alone. That, that's, that's the answer. In other words, if God is going to give us Scriptures, which contain salvation alone, if God's going to give us scriptures that teach us about grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then shouldn't he get all the glory alone? I mean, shouldn't he be the end of all things for us? And that's what our passage is about. When you look at Romans chapter 11, it's a very short text, but it's power-packed with grace. You know, think about what he's saying. He's saying, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. 
See, what Paul's doing here, and I want you to follow this, in the first 11 chapters, Paul has been talking about the magnificence of God's salvation. Uh, that, that we were sinners, we had fallen short of God's glory, we were without hope, we were under condemnation, we were justly deserving God's wrath, and yet God in mercy sends a son to die for our sins to reconcile. Jesus is our propitiation. He's born, he's absorbed the wrath of God that we might be free. And so you have this, this grace of God in providing Christ. Now, through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. And, and, and this peace with God is going to bring us in union with Christ and the Spirit. So now, the Christian no longer lives according to the law, but according to grace, according to the Spirit. And, and then, of course, it goes on in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to talk about the salvations for all peoples, Jew and Gentile. So, after Paul finishes this dense theological treatise, he breaks forth in worship. And there's something for you to know here. You know, theology is often seen as dividing or boring, but for Paul it wasn't. When you understand who God is and what he's done, you, you move towards thankfulness and gratitude. And that's what he's doing here, because he's going to hit from 12 to 16, the last, those chapters remaining after our passage. It's all practical living in light of his grace. But Paul's taking a pause here as we are. And he's just saying, I've got to just stop and thank God. I, and this is incredible. I just got to thank God right now for all that he's done for me. And that's what we're going to do. So two things I want to do. One is simply this, that we're going to look at this text in verses 33 through 35. We're just simply looking at this idea of standing in awe of God. We just stand before him and recognize that he is so unique. And then, and then if we're standing in awe of God, then in 36, I think it's a call to have us fall down and worship. So we stand in awe of God, this is who he is, and then we fall down and worship. So that's the two parts to the sermon. And then I've got some free application for you that you can have at the end of the sermon. Kind of a takeaway, because sometimes this seems so ethereal, it seems kind of squishy. Hopefully it won't be by the end. Okay, so standing in awe of God, look at what Look what Paul does in 33a, just the first half of 33. What does he say? He says, oh, so right away he starts out with this exclamation, this, this word of worship, oh, the depths of the riches of uh, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So Paul's like, a, he's like an alpine climber, right? And he's going up the mountain, and he finally hits the peak, and he looks out and he just sees the glory of all of creation. He's overwhelmed with what he's seeing right now. And this is Paul saying at the end of 11 chapters, he's saying, God, how could you do this? Who would have the wisdom and the knowledge to do this? Now, you know, when you put wisdom and knowledge together, they're often interchangeable, uh, but, but there is a distinction. You know, knowledge is more factual. It's more of the information we get in life, and wisdom is more functional. It's what do we do with the wisdom. So a lot of people can be filled, their heads are filled with knowledge, but they're kind of silly. They don't make all the best decisions in the world. There are other people that are just naturally wise. They may not have all the facts of a situation, but, but with the facts that they have, they make some pretty good decisions. Well, for God, they're both, and they're immeasurably deep. He says, oh, the depths of them. You cannot hit the bottom of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Now listen, the deepest place we could go to, I think it's called the Mariana Trench. I was correct at mispronunciation, but I Googled it, and whatever worth Google is, right, is Mariana Trench. But anyways, it's about 36,000 feet down. It's in the western Pacific. Now, 
Mount Everest is only 29,000 feet. So, I mean, that's a huge, deep cavern that people have only traveled to once. There is nothing down there. I think maybe a little glowing fish or something. Nothing's happening down there. You can't get to it except with unique conditions. And so when Paul's saying, oh, the depth of the wisdom, you cannot plumb the depths of his wisdom, even at a micro level. You know, even the complexity of one human cell within the walls of a cell is amazingly complex. The structure of it. But, but then go macro, go to quasars and constellations. I, I, I mean, the wisdom and the knowledge of God is incredible. There is no depth to it. We may find people are bright around us, but there, there is no comparison. And what he's saying here first is that his wisdom is beyond measure. A.W. Tozer, a preacher uh, in the mid-20th century, particularly in Chicago, he says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret. All thrones and dominions, personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, heaven, and hell. But God knows it all. His wisdom is beyond measure. But not just that. Look in the second half of 33. Because his, um, his ways are unsearchable. Notice what he says, how unsearchable are your ways, how inscrutable are your paths. Now, you know, this idea of um, his judgments, how, ins- you know, how unsearchable are his judgments, those are God's judicial actions. He, he just moves as judge of the world. A- and he says, how unsearchable are your ways, or how inscrutable. That word means how untraceable. It's like footprints in a sand, you can follow something, but you cannot with God. His ways and his judgments. In other words, why does God execute justice on one nation, but then he grants mercy on another? You know, we know in part what he does, but we don't know in full. There are things that we'll never know, in this life at least, why God does what he does. Why doesn't he do what he doesn't do? We don't know. Uh, What Paul's saying is you've got to step back and marvel and just say, we don't know. We don't know. We cannot fully understand God. You know, C.S. Lewis tried to explain it, you know, to try to understand the absolute incomprehensible nature of, uh, of God would be like two shellfish talking to each other about a, about a man. And, and so he kind of gives this dialogue. He kind of explains it. He says this. He says, uh, uncorrected by any positive insight, they would build a picture of man as a sort of amorphous jelly, you know, no shell. And, and, and he's existing nowhere in particular, no rocks in his world. And he never eats anything because there's no water to bring nutrients to him. He makes the point that the shellfish would conclude that man is a famished jelly existing in a dimensionless void because the shellfish is only trying to understand man with the categories that he has. We can't understand God fully. And, and here's kind of the warning. The warning is, you know, sometimes out of our mouth comes, I can't believe God would do that. Or my God would never do that. Or why doesn't God ever do this? We have to really be cautious here because we cannot understand God. And and by making those kind of statements, we might be implicitly saying, I know more than he does. 
I know more about God than maybe he knows about himself. And, and John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, said this. He said, he said, when you begin to venture into discussions about God where he doesn't reveal himself in his word, he goes, you enter a labyrinth of which there is no easy retreat. You get in real quickly over your heads. So it, this isn't causing God to be unloving. It's just putting him in his proper perspective. We cannot fully understand his ways. They're inscrutable to us. But then thirdly, look in 34 and 35, because he's still trying to help us stand in awe of God. And he has these three questions here. And two he draws from Isaiah 41. He draws from Job 41. And he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Those are the questions he asks. I think Paul's probably trying to restrain us from holding God in contempt when he does things that we don't like. I think, I think Paul may be kind of constraining us to not think that we're, up, you know, we're climbing up the ladder of wisdom with God. Because the short answer to who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, quick answer, no one. I, I, I mean, nobody has ever been consulted by God. Nobody has ever offered a suggestion or given an idea or, hey, here's a different strategy. Hey, why don't you think about it this way? I mean, nobody's done that to God. I mean, for God to consult us, it would be like a cardiologist consulting his pet dog on what he should do in this complex case. He would never do that. He's so far above us. But not just that. Think about in the, the third question when he says this. He asks, what has man given to him that he should be repaid? Quick answer, no one. I mean, no one's given to God anything. I mean, think about it. Everything you and I have has been given to us. So if we were to give anything back to him, we would just increase the debt that we already owe to him. And we're all squatters. He's the Lord of the manor. There's no bargaining with God. There's no collaboration. There's no deliberation. There's no negotiating with God. We, we can demand nothing. In fact, in many ways, we deserve nothing because everything has come from him to us. And so Paul's just saying, can you not stand in awe? I mean, think about your own birth. Just think about it for a minute. Did you know where you'd be born? Did you know? Do you do anything about choosing the parents you have? The place you'd be born, the time you'd be born, the type of color, hair, eye, stature, the opportunities you've had, the brains that you'd have, the athletic ability that you'd have. Did you determine any of that? No, you didn't determine any. And so what Paul's saying in 33 through 35 is just stand back in awe of God for a minute. Just take a step back and breathe because we're dealing with somebody, some being that is well beyond anything we can imagine. Do you ever contemplate God? Do you marvel over his greatness? Do you ever think and be overwhelmed? You know, we've learned much about God through science. You know, science in a way has helped us understand God, at least understand how he has revealed himself in creation. Uh, but in a way, science has not helped us. Uh, science, you know, as science increases, we, we kind of grow in arrogance and our awe and our sense of wonder kind of takes a nosedive, which is kind of ironic because it's the Christian faith which advanced the study of science. You know, the Christian faith put forth a God. This God is knowable, and he's created things in order, and he's a good God, and his creation is worthy to be studied because it emanates and comes from him. 
And so here it is, Christianity kind of births science, and then science turns us back on creation. We kind of get this, or back on God, we kind of get this feeling with science. We learn these things, and we kind of feel like we know more than we do. So, for example, now with the Hubble telescope, we begin to learn many things about science. And uh, we, we see the distance between planets, and we start thinking, hey, we really know kind of what's going on here. We know that the pistol star is 25,000 light years away. And we've discovered that that star, at least at one point, they assumed, or they estimated that it was 10 million times brighter than our sun. 10 million times brighter. It produces more energy in 20 seconds than our sun produces in a year. And we, we learn these facts and we begin to think, yeah, we're getting a handle on creation. And yet we still can't look at our own sun without damaging our eyes. Because we know it's out there and it produces that kind of energy, we don't understand it. We can't go there if we wanted to. We're just mesmerized, or we should be mesmerized, at the whole, at the whole sight of it. So, so what I'm, I think what Paul's saying here is, for us to bring glory to God, we have to first stand in awe of who he is. Do you stand in awe of God? You know, I, I think about kids. We're coming up to Christmas. We're less than 50 days away, and I just happened to find that out. And, um, but, but when you have little kids, and they, so as a parent watching my little kids, but now <clears throat> seeing our grandchildren, there is an awe and there is an excitement to when they see the presents. I mean, they rip the packages open, the colors, the lights, everything. They're just amazed at it. And they may even play with it for 10 minutes. But at least initially, they are really excited and they're in awe of all that they just got. And I'm envious of that. Because as parents, we grow up and we begin to think less of the vastness of God as displayed in creation, but particularly the mercy of God in salvation. It's familiar to us. We understand it. Yeah, I get the gospel. And, and, and we forget how incredible it is that God would appoint a son to save us for himself, even though we are yet sinners. So Paul's saying here in 33 to 35, stand in awe of God. And if you can't stand in awe of God, if you can't stand and marvel at him, you probably will have trouble falling down in worship. It, it probably, he won't be that attractive for you to worship. But let's look at it, though. Paul calls us to worship in 36. Notice what he says. For from him and through him and to him are all things... To him be glory forever. And th these, are, these are words of worship. These are words of calling you to enjoy God at a level you've never enjoyed him before. Now, when we speak about the glory of God, so Paul's saying the end of all things ought to be the glory of God. But when we say the glory of God, we kind of use the term kind of casual, but, but we have trouble defining what glory means. So let me try to explain it to you. The glory of God would be, the, the Hebrew word actually just means heavy. There's a heaviness to God. And what it means by heaviness is that his perfections, the attributes that he has, his beauty, his power, his majesty, they are heavy laden with perfection. They're like facets of a diamond. It, you, you can imagine that tree that's just, the branches are bending over because of the weight of the fruit. God, as it were, kind of bends over. He is perfectly holy. He's perfectly 
powerful. He's perfectly lovely. And so God and his glory, and this glory of God emanates from him. It's intrinsic to him, it's part of him, and yet it shines forth out of him. And that's why, for example, in creation, the psalmist in 19, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim his handiwork. You can look at creation, and when you start, when you start thinking about the universe, and you just buzz along out there for about 100,000 light years, and maybe you get tenth of the way there, you're just amazed. And sometimes people want to say, that's how important we are. No, 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 that's not the point. The point is that displays his incredible power and glory. And so he displays it. But I think Paul's talking about something different here. I think Paul's telling us that his glory is best displayed, not simply in creation, but in salvation, in redemption, in how he saves. Notice what he says. He says, for from him come all things, salvation. For from him, God designed the plan. God determined what would happen. God chose Christ to die. God chose the hour. He chose the place. God had the plan. Before you and I were even a thought, God had a plan to save. This is all determined and designed by God himself. It wasn't us. It was all him. And not only is it all from him, but it's all through him. So he's the one that brought the son. He brought the son that would bear the sins of his people. He was the one that gave the spirit. The spirit that convicts us of sin and then perseveres us in faith. The spirit is the one that keeps us faithful till the end. And, and, and all of the salvation, it's not from him and just through him, but it's to him. We're being saved for God. You're not being saved because you want to avoid a hot spot. You're not being saved so that you might have a life that's 100 times better than this life. You're being saved unto God. You're going to be with God forever. This is incredible. You will be with the creator of all things. God's whole design throughout the Bible, he creates a couple to be with him, to enjoy him forever. And of course they sin. They're removed from his presence. And then the whole plan moves into action to draw these people back. In fact, one author, I love the way he said it, he said that God has always planned that we would dine with him, that we would eat with him. That's how it started out in the garden with all the food. And then how's it end in Revelation 22? The Messianic banquet? The food again? God wants us to dine with him. God wants us to be with him. In the Westminster Catechism, it was kind of a summary of the Reformational doctrine. Uh, the first question in the Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God forever. That's the call upon us, that we're called to glorify him, that we're called to fall down and worship at his glory, at his beauty, at his power. And so you have this 33 to 35, let's stand in awe of God, this is who he is, and then when we know that he is the one who has saved us, we fall down and worship him. That's the point of 33 through 36. Paul's just stopping. All, the, the, all this deep theological truth on salvation, he has saved you. So we fall down and we enjoy him. I hope you can. I hope you can stand in awe of him. I hope that at the end of this day, you might be convicted and think, you know what, I haven't thought the thoughts that I should have over God. And I surely haven't been as thankful over his salvation to me. So that's it. But let me, let me just give you five takeaways. And I'm going to try to give them to you as, as kind of strong suggestions for you. 
you know, to think about what you do with this kind of text. The first thing I would call you to is celebrate God, would you? I, I mean, celebrate him, rejoice over him. I mean, if all things are from him and all things are through him and to him, he's given you everything you have. Shouldn't we celebrate him? Shouldn't he be central and center to our lives? I mean, shouldn't he be the epicenter of everything we do? Shouldn't every joy and every happiness be somehow rooted in him? You know, many of us, we all want happiness. Nothing wrong with that. We all want to be happy. I get it. Here's the problem with humanity. We just go after happiness through the created order rather than the creator. That's the problem that Paul dealt with in Romans chapter 1. You know, we want to be happy, so we want to have a good marriage, and we put all this weight on marriage. Okay, the marriage has to produce happiness for me. It can't do it. God can, but it can't. But we, we make marriage the center of our happiness. Financial security, I have to have that. Or relationships, or some experience, or perfect children, or whatever the case is. We find, or we try to find, in the things of creation, ultimate happiness, and we can't do it. And this is the nature of sin. It's exchanging the glory of the created order for the glory of the creator. So I would just call you to celebrate God. Now, saying that, you may feel threatened, but I do want a good marriage. I do want good children. I do want financial security. And here's the problem. When we try to put the second things first, we end up not getting either. That's how C.S. Lewis says it. In fact, let me just kind of give you this words that he wrote in a letter to a friend. He said this. So I'm talking about celebrating God, but we tend to celebrate everything before God. He says, the longer I considered it, the more I came to suspect that I was perceiving a universal law. He's saying, in people. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of the dog. Of course this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good, involves the loss of the small or the partial good. If you really focus on the partial good, you'll never get to the total good. He says this, put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. We never get, say, even the sensual pleasure of food at its best when we are being so greedy. In other words, we, we miss the glory of God by looking at the glory of the creation. The things that we have, the marriages, the families, all that sort of good stuff, they're all to be pointers to God. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian in New England, wrote these words. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. That's what I'm saying. Celebrate God. The enjoyment of God is our proper and only happiness with which our souls can be truly satisfied. To go to heaven to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So celebrate God. Enjoy him. Ask him to give you the grace to find him greater than all of the toys that he gives to us. And then secondly, I would say this. You're going to be comforted by the holiness of God, or by the glory of God. Be comforted by his glory. What do I mean by this? In this world, you're going to have trouble. Jesus has already told us this. You will have struggles in this life with health, with family, with kids, with marriage, with business, with relationships. The point of his glory is if all things have come from him, if all things have come from him, 
That would include the trials that you go through. The trials and the hardships that you go through, they are from him. And they are going to be coming through him, but they're going to end up to him. In other words, the temporal struggles that you have will have eternal benefits to them. I'm asking you to believe this by faith. Now, some of you who are older, and you've gone through some rigorous times in life, and you've come out on the other side, and you have found God to be sweeter and God to be sufficient, you need to tell that to people who are younger. You need to tell, this is what God did for me in the moment of, of great crises. He was there. In fact, I've seen him there clearer than when I saw him in the sweet times. We need to test, because this is the promise that he will comfort us. You know, in Isaiah 39, God is bringing about judgment on the people of Israel. He's going to send them into Babylon. This is bad news. You're out of here. You're going to be sent to Babylon for 70 years. And then in the very next verse, after pronouncing the judgment, in the very next verse, he says to Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. He, he sends Isaiah now to comfort them. Even though you're in the midst of trial and you're in the midst of the wilderness, I will be sufficient for you. Why? Because it's all going to move to my glory. All things are through him and from him and to him. Okay, then thirdly, I would say this, that contemplate God. I spoke to this at the, earlier in the sermon. Contemplate him. Would you give thought to him? And I would say specifically not just creation, but your own salvation. Give thought to how he saved you. Ask yourself this question. Why do I believe? Why would I believe in this man, this God-man who came down and died for me? Why do you believe? And what makes you different than your sibling or your friend who has heard the same gospel? Why have you chosen to be here and you're believing actually the words that I'm sharing from Scripture? Why do you believe? Was it because you're smarter? Was it because you're better? Was it because you're more righteous? Do you, do you not have to say, it was God. It was God who saved me. It was God who did it. I don't know why my sister and brother don't believe. I don't know why I do. God opened my eyes to it. See, when you contemplate how God has moved in salvation, it humbles you. It brings about humility. And this is what we need because of the hubris of man, the, the arrogance of man. We love the glory. We love to be glorified. We love to be made much of. We love to be at the center of God's plan. And we're not. You know, I, I think about Muhammad Ali... Many of you know the name. He was a, a great boxer years ago. And, and his line, his line that he'd say over, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. How fast man's glory fades. It's like a flower. It's here. And then all of a sudden the cool air comes in September and October and it just fades away. Contemplating God's greatness will bring about a humility to us that we need. Paul says it to us this way. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. By the way, you and I were in that verse right there. We were part of the low and despised, if you were wondering where you were. He says, we, he chose the things, he says, uh, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Nobody's going to boast. Isn't that going to be neat? We're going to all be together with God, and nobody's going to be self-boasting. He says this, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what it is. And you know, in the boasting of God, you'll find your greatest joy. That, that, that's the beauty of this whole thing. 
Okay, so, so first celebrate God, take comfort from God and His glory, contemplate God, then fourth, I would ask you to consecrate yourselves. And what I mean, I'm trying to keep the C's going so I can remember. You want to consecrate yourselves. What that means is you want to commit your life to live for His glory. When Paul says in Corinthians, or in Colossians, he says, whatever you do, whether it's word or deed, do it all in the name of Christ, giving thanks to the Father. Live for God. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. This is a reformational principle. The principle is that you can live for God's glory whether you're doing a menial task or a prestigious task. You can be at home. You can be in the classroom. You can be at the workplace. You can be in the office. You can live for God's glory by living diligently, being honest, loving your neighbor, doing a fair job for the pay that you're being paid. Treating people with respect. You can bring God glory for the simplest of tasks. You know, do you know the sheer folly of trying to live for the principles of the world? You see it in the political world, don't you? They love power. They live for their own name. You see it in the entertainment world. They live for their own name. They think they're God. They're, they're just moving in ways that they want to. You see it in the academic world. You see it in the in every sphere of this world, you see a people that are living for themselves. I'm calling you, if you know that all things have come from him, they have come to you through him, and they are all going to end up with him and to him, shouldn't you live for his glory? You know, when I was in seminary coming out, I read this book, uh, God's Passion for His Glory. It, uh, it was a, a short book by John Piper, but it was highlighting and uh, illuminating this um, paper written by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, who I quoted earlier, and it's called The End for Which God Created the World. And it's really saying that God has created the world for himself, for his glory, that we will find our greatest joy when we find it in God. When we find it in God, we'll find our greatest joy in every gift that he gives us. And when Carol and I read it, it, it changed my world. It, it just changed my, my paradigm on life. I began to look at my marriage. My marriage wasn't for my happiness. My marriage was for the glory of God. In that, by the way, I found happiness. My parenting, my parenting wasn't to get good kids. I wanted to parent now for the glory of God. And, and in doing that, I, I think I got quite, quite fine kids. You know, doing ministry. The goal of ministry is fruitfulness and conversions. Well, no, no, no. It's really for the glory of God. And then in that, we did see the growth. And we saw the move of God's spirit. In times of sorrow and difficulty, I just wanted to get through it. Find the quickest exit ramp off of it. But then I learned, no, no, no. I want to I suffer for the glory of God. And I want to draw out of him all that I need to learn, all that I need to do for his glory. And in that, I found release and I found freedom. God has given you a real privilege here. You can now live for his glory. You can display his honor. You can display his beauty to people by the way you live. So consecrate yourself to him. If you've been living for yourself, if you've been living for the approval of man, if you've been living for financial security, if you've been living for all these temporal things, just you might want to date it because they're all going to fade away for you. And you want to live for his glory because that's the only thing that's eternal. And the last thing I would say is be concerned for the world. This is a missional text again, that we're to declare his glory to the nations in Psalm 96, that we do have a call that we are to declare his glory. What does that mean? That we are called to tell people about the greatness of God. If we, if we care for them, 
And they're wrapped up in the temporal surroundings of they love their new car. Come on. It's going to rust out in 10 years. Be a friend. Tell them about the greatness of God. Sure, that's a fine automobile, no doubt. But at the end of the day, it's four rubber wheels on a big metal box on it. It's the glory of God that will bring them to the ultimate joy. I'm not just picking on cars. It can be football games. It can be whatever you want. But it's a missional text that reminds us that the nations need to hear that God is better than anything else in this world. And everybody's pursuing something. You're all worshipers. You're all dedicated worshipers. Everybody is. Question is, what are we in the hunt for? Okay, let me... Um, so, we're at the end of the Reformational series here. Five solas. Scripture alone, grace alone, uh, faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. May that be, may that be our cry and the cry of our heart. I, I, I pray it is for us. Let me pray for us and then we'll prepare for the table.